0: The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision.
1: This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique, and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. China!
2: And investing in China isn't easy and carries some very unique and challenging risks. How could these risks play out from an investment perspective? It could be we have investment bans, trade restrictions and and sanctions. We could decouple supply chains. And at the extreme, we could have outright investment bans where you just cannot. Starbucks is prohibited from selling coffee in China. So you've asked how concerned are we about these geopolitical tensions, we are certainly more concerned about this than we were a few years ago.
1: That's Hamish Douglas, Magellan's Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, as he assesses the potential challenges of investing in China at a time of increasing tension between China, the US and its allies. Welcome to Episode 12 of In The Know. In this episode, Hamish is joined by Michael Morell, former deputy director of the CIA, and Tiki Fullerton, the Australian newspaper's business editor-at-large, who hosts this month's discussion on how to approach investing in China during these times of heightened geopolitical tensions. Can the US rely on its allies as tensions increase? Could there be extended bans on US nationals investing in China by the Biden administration? Also under discussion, cybercrime and cryptocurrency, and the regulation of big tech in the US, just as the technology arms race ramps up between the US and China. And we end this episode with some fascinating insights from both Hamish and Michael, as they list the biggest global threats that keep them awake at night. We start with some words of welcome from Tiki.
0: Well, hello. Welcome to the 12th episode of Magellan's podcast series, In the Know. I'm Tiki Fullerton from The Australian, and I'm delighted to be speaking to Michael Morrell, the former deputy director of the CIA, and Hamish Douglas, the chairman and chief investment officer of Magellan today. Well, I recently interviewed Hamish at Magellan's 2021 in-review live investor broadcast. And at that same time and same event, Hamish himself spoke with Michael Morell. So we're gonna have a lot of fun drilling down on all of this, bringing together the world of macro and investing with geopolitics and risk. Hamish, Michael, welcome to you both. It's great to be with you, Tiki. Thank you, Tiki, pleasure to be here. Right now, well, Michael, let's kick off with you. During your recent one-on-one with Hamish, you talked about the rising tensions between China, the US and its allies. So if you could fast forward 10 years, how do you see this all playing out?
3: So Tiki, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? (laughs) The trends now um, at this very moment are that the Chinese will continue to increase their economic dominance relative to us. And if you were a betting person, you would put your money on that trend continuing. But I think there's a difference between a high probability of something happening and certainty. And while it's probable that that trend will continue, it's not at all certain, and I think there's two things that could change it. One is that my country, the United States, has shown in its history an ability to revitalize itself. And there is a possibility that that will happen over the next 10 years. On the other hand, there is certainly a possibility that China will stumble. It has some very serious issues of its own, ranging from demographics to debt burden, to the environment. And so it is a possibility that it could stumble. So no guarantees that the current trend will continue, but at this moment, I would bet that it would.
0: There seems to be a lot of work being done behind the scenes, Michael. Do you see the U.S. maintaining a a stable coalition of allies? We know we've got our own alliance with the U.S., but what about U.S. allies resisting the rise of China or maybe another picture?
3: Tiki, there's two parts to the... United States' China strategy. One is to revitalize our economy, right, so that we can compete better against the Chinese. The other is to rebuild the alliances that President Trump undermined and then use those alliances to push back against Chinese behavior that we see as inconsistent with the interests of the United States and and our allies. And I think that one of the things the Biden administration has learned already is that that latter uh, rebuilding of those alliances and having our allies stand with us is easier said than done. And I think there's two factors going on. One is that our allies are now more dependent on China economically than they were four years ago or eight years ago or 12 years ago. So getting them to stand with us given that dependence is difficult. And then the other is that they're all asking a question that is difficult to answer. And the question they're asking is, Is President Biden, can you guarantee us that in 2024 or 2028, we're not going to go back to a 2016? We're not going to go back to a place where the U.S. is, is not embracing its allies, but is challenging them? And it's a very, very difficult thing for President Biden to do because you can't guarantee that. And because we can't guarantee that, our allies have to hedge, right? They have to hedge with the Russians. They have to hedge with the Iranians. They have to hedge, most importantly, with the Chinese. So getting our allies to actually stand with us is proving a little bit more difficult than the Biden team thought going in.
0: Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. So Hamish, uh, I mean, you've obviously touted the importance of getting China right from an investment perspective. You've got large China related investments in the global portfolios like Alibaba and Tencent, Starbucks, LVMH. How worried are you about these risks, these geopolitical tensions rising?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, is getting it right from an investment perspective. And Michael was saying that if he was a betting person, the economic rise of China is going to continue. And if I'm a betting person, I would actually share that view strongly. You know, the simple answer of why we want to get this right is that economic rise. Chinese GDP per capita, sort of income per head, is currently still one fifth of Australia's or the United States. Uh, So China has a long way to go in terms of its economic rise, although it's the second largest economy in the world. And we want to share in that increased prosperity of China on a per capita basis from a consumption basis. And we want to do it in a sensible and measured way. But China and investing in China isn't easy and carries some very unique and challenging Risks at the end of the day, uh, rising geopolitical tensions is one of these key risks that we're facing. We're thinking about, and you know, how could these risks play out from an investment perspective? It could be we have investment bans, trade restrictions, and and sanctions. We could decouple supply chains. And at the extreme, we could have outright investment bans where you just cannot. Starbucks is prohibited from selling coffee in China. So you've asked how concerned are we about these geopolitical tensions? We are certainly more concerned about this than we were a few years ago. But then, Hamish, how do you manage those risks? How do we manage those risks? Well, first of all, I'd say is we don't want to have all our eggs in one basket here. And, and certainly our portfolio, maybe 20% of the portfolio is exposed to China. So 80% isn't exposed to China. French companies like LVMH actually have different risks to a U.S. consumer company like Yum Brands or Starbucks. One has the U.S. flag on it and the other has the French flag on it. And as Michael pointed out, allies are playing their cards and hedging their risks. The French are actually very particularly hedging their risks in China and playing quite different cards to the United States. The Chinese tech companies like Alibaba and, and Tencent, they're probably not really facing the geopolitical risks, they're more facing internal risks risks that the CCP is going to crack down on them, not that the Biden administration is going to crack down on them. So having this diversification of different forms of risk in China is very important. We don't want to put all our eggs into the US branded consumer companies that have great businesses in China. We don't own Nike. We love Nike's business. And it's run by John Donahoe, who used to run eBay, that we know very well. But Do you want to own um, Starbucks and Nike? If there is a sort of hot war between China and the United States, those U.S. brands, you're not going to be selling anything in China. So, you know, we want to make sure that we understand the risks. We want to diversify those risks. As I said, getting this right is important, but it's difficult uh, because of these risks.
0: So back to you, Michael, um, there we were talking about the potential of banning certain investments. You and Hamish, I know, talked about decoupling in your earlier chat. The U.S. government's ban on investment by U.S. nationals in some Chinese companies that have ties to the military. I mean, that's been a development. They'd seem to pose a national security threat. But what about the risk that other companies could be added to that list? The Biden administration seemed to be much tougher on China.
3: Great question, Tiki. I think the probability or the likelihood of that happening is pretty low. So why do I say that? I say that because both the Trump administration and the Biden administration um, had an executive order with regard to this issue, right? No investments in companies that support the Chinese military. The one big difference is that in the Trump administration, the control over that list was the Department of Commerce with significant input from the Department of Defense. In the Biden executive order, that authority went to the Department of Treasury, where there's, I'm just going to put it this way, people are more rational there about what should be on that list and what shouldn't be on that list. So I doubt that the list is going to get expanded to things that are non-military. I'd say the one caveat to that is if the Chinese took action against a company like Apple, I think it would force the United States to respond in kind against a a Chinese tech company. But I don't see that happening. So I do think the probability is pretty low that we'd see an expansion outside the military area.
0: And you don't see like two internets developing or anything like that? Look, I think
3: on the longer term, I think that's a question, right? What the world is going to look like, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, which a much stronger China, there may be a pole, right? China would be one pole. The United States would be another pole. There'd be a set of countries around China and a set of countries around us. I think that's a real possibility, but that's way down the road.
0: Okay, Hamish, what's your take on this? <laughs> yeah, obviously, we think
2: about this risk and we spend a lot of time speaking to Michael, about this. Another one of uh, Michael's ex-colleagues, Chris Johnson, uh, who worked with Michael at the CIA as a China expert, we discussed with him this risk as well. Our big investments, of course, are Alibaba and Tencent, the two big tech giants in, in China. They have cloud computing businesses, and of course, they do have some military ties, if you want to extend that argument. How would it happen if they got put on this list, which would ban US nationals from investing them In these companies. First of all, we'd say there's no impact on the cash flows of the company if US investors are banned from investing them. So nothing actually happens to the underlying valuations by being put on this list. But the share price would get harmed in the short term. There's no doubt about it. And because US nationals would be forced to sell, do we need to think about that? We're sitting in Australia We do because we actually have a lot of U.S. nationals invested with us around the world. Who is going to get harmed by that executive order? It's not China. As I said, it's going to have no impact on Alibaba's or Tencent's businesses. It's going to have no impact on President Xi uh, or the CCP. The people who would get harmed are the U.S. nationals who would be forced to sell their investments at no doubt depressed prices. So we do think about that. And I think it's important and it's right. It's been moved, as Michael said, to a treasury that is now run by Janet Yellen. And I think she's deeply logical. It is a political issue to some extent. But even in the final days of the Trump administration, where the security hawks really pushed this issue about Alibaba and Tencent, even President Trump couldn't get over this line because it's almost like a declaration of war on China's two biggest companies for you kind of go for what purpose? What would it actually achieve other than harming? And Michael is right, it may well escalate things against a company like Apple, uh, which I don't think the US would want to go down. So I think the probability of them being put on the list, particularly now it's gone to Janet Yellen is relatively low at the moment. I think Michael's advice to us, it's low. Chris Johnson's advice is low. But we have this as one of the big items on our radar. When you're investing in Tencent and Alibaba, you cannot put your head in the sand. We have risk limits. Um, We've reduced our exposures in these companies because of this sort of emerging risk. You can never get overconfident that it's not going to happen. But it looks fairly low probability at the moment. And certainly the temperature's gone down recently on this.
0: Well, another thing that's flashing rather brightly on the radar at the moment is crypto. And uh, Hamish, your annual investor letter covered cryptocurrencies, the fact that regulators are starting to crack down. Michael, you must have so many connections in this space. How concerned are you that cryptocurrencies are now actually the preferred form of payment for illicit trade, uh, financing terrorism, uh, cybercrime, like ransomware?
3: So I think crypto is misunderstood, Tiki. And, you know, in two ways, one is, yes, bad actors are using crypto, but crypto is actually used less by bad actors than the traditional banking system and certainly less than cash. Wow. The data is very clear on that. And the other thing that is misunderstood is if I could pick one platform on which I wanted a bad actor to move money, it would be crypto because every single transaction, right, is on the blockchain for everybody to see. And that's how the FBI and the IRS often recover money. And on the Colonial Pipeline, they were able to recover money because they were able to follow the money on the blockchain. So, yes, bad actors use it, but not as much as the conventional wisdom makes it out to be. And the blockchain is a very, very powerful forensic tool.
0: So Michael, I mean, I think we've seen President Biden being pressured to turn the screw on President Putin. Do you think regulators will move against cryptocurrencies given the risk of these unregulated payments uh, that they have on fighting crime and terrorism?
3: So if they're rational, they won't. If politics becomes involved, they might. I hope they don't, Tiki, because I actually believe that financial technology is and should be on the list of the technologies that we're competing against China for that really matter. I think who controls payments in what denomination of currency those payments are made matter greatly to national security. And so I want to see financial innovation. So I hope we don't see a crackdown on crypto over this issue of ransomware.
0: Well, that's a fascinating view. Now, Hamish, Magellan doesn't invest in cryptocurrencies, but you chose to dedicate quite a portion of your annual investor letter to them. Now, why? It's
2: a really good question, Tiki. You know, we titled the, the letter, The Importance of Being Rational. And, you know, we fundamentally believe whenever you make any investment-related decisions, it always has to be fact-based and hugely Rational and never get emotional about decisions you're making. And I personally think there are many irrational things happening in the investing world at the moment. Cryptocurrencies is one of them, but it's probably one of the greatest scale irrationalities we've seen (laughs) in the last 100 years. There are millions of people participating, including a friend of mine a few months ago who said, Hamish, I want to ask you a question. My mother, he said, who's 90 years old, has been debating with her friends whether they should be investing in Bitcoin and they wanted my views. And that is really saying something, that it's down, but it's literally every cab driver, every young person. You know, my daughter was in the UK and she sold her car and I said, can I have the money back? And she said, oh, Dad we bought some Bitcoin with the money, we'll give it to you when we've doubled our money. And I said, well, I'm not sure you'll be doing that. I think they may have halved their money. I think they probably bought it the, uh, at the peak. So why did I do it? I really wanted to do it as an illustration of the extreme irrationality that's going on. And I really hope people read the illustration I gave because it was an illustration of rationality in describing the irrationality of what's occurring. You know, many people will disagree with me and many people will say, I don't understand. And that's absolutely fine. And when there's extreme irrationality, people are deeply emotional and they hate the criticism when it's occurring. Blockchain itself is not irrational. And blockchain as a platform is going to be incredibly important moving Forward, I personally think Bitcoin and a number of the current cryptocurrencies is a mass delusion at the end of the day, and it will inevitably crash to zero. But there will be digital currencies. There will be central banked digital currencies on the blockchain. There will be smart contracts on the blockchain. There may well be a whole version of the internet on the blockchain which I think is incredibly important of what's going on. But there is nothing there with these non-asset-backed, non-central-banked cryptocurrencies other than the blockchain technology. And they're playing on people's fears of what's happening with the central banks. And some of those fears are real, by the way. But this isn't the answer. So it was really a demonstration of really probably staying away from the mass crowd when there's irrational behaviour. And it's so tempting when people are seemingly making such easy money and there's sort of a mystique about it with things called like blockchain and a lot of very smart people like Elon Musk tweeting and things about it for all to go there and I look like a has-been who's sort of criticising. I very much hope people read the rational explanation about what's occurring, but I may well be wrong and I'm happy... I'm happy to do that. But I think it's important for people to understand the difference between rationality and irrationality. It's just, I think, an important illustration. And it's not the only irrational thing that's happening in
0: the investment world at the moment. Well, I loved your upending of Bitcoin in your letter. But let's come back to uh, regulation and the US. Michael, obviously a lot of action in America to rein in big tech and even talk about breaking up big tech again. Given we've got a technology arms race between China and the U.S., why on earth is this happening now?
3: So my own view is that this is largely politics in the U.S. You know, Tiki, I was trained as an economist, and so actually I believe in antitrust, and I believe in not allowing a concentration of power in an industry when that results in a lack of competition. And that's the issue you have to look at is – Is there a lack of competition that hurts the consumers? Is there anti-competitive practices that hurt consumers? And when I look at this portion of high tech, I don't see it. I don't see anti-competitive practices that harm consumers. And so I think it's largely politics. I think it results in some way from what happened in 2016 and to what extent the Russians were able to use those social media companies and how they responded by not taking responsibility. And by responding, by, by making themselves sound like they were not part of the United States, which did not play well on Capitol Hill, did not play well in the country. So I think this is a political response. As we compete with China, I want these companies in the lead. So the last thing I want to do is weaken them. But it's hard to tell how this is going to play out because politics is involved. But I think for the interests of our country, I don't want to see them broken up.
0: Right. So, Michael, uh, obviously, we've shifted from a Trump administration to a Biden administration. Uh, do you think now we'll get major tech regulation passed by the U.S. Congress in the near term? Or do you think existing laws will be policed more aggressively?
3: So I do. I don't know about the legislation because Congress is uh, is uh, so um, balanced between the two parties and getting anything done there is going to be difficult. But I do think there is a strong feeling on the left of the Democratic Party, which is dominating now. Um, the president has moved significantly in that direction. There is a strong feeling. There's a strong anti-business feeling in general, and a strong anti-big tech feeling in particular. So you may see you may see some additional regulation. I don't think you're gonna see significant legislation, but you may see some um, additional regulation.
0: Right, so Hamish, obviously Magellan has major investments in some of these huge US tech companies. They've been really important to the portfolio, Microsoft, Alphabet, Facebook. Uh, How do you think about the risk of regulatory intervention? How do you manage that risk?
2: Yeah, Tiki, that's a really important question when we think about our portfolio. First of all, I'd say the regulatory risk faced by these large US tech companies is visible and slow moving. You don't just wake up in the morning and find that the laws have been changed. To date, most of the intervention has been fines and behavioural changes. And there's been some new laws like data protection laws. There was a law in Europe called the General Data protection regulation, the GDPR, as it was known, these have been no more than flesh wounds. Even if you hear a 4 or $5 billion fine, we're talking multi-trillion dollar companies here. (laughs) So the fines are very, very small in the scheme of this. To do real harm, I think is going to require new laws. And as Michael said, you know, the chance of new laws being passed by Congress are fairly slim. At the moment, and maybe after we move through the midterms next year, it will become even slimmer if the House of Representatives flips to the Republicans. You mentioned three companies, you know, in our US companies. Microsoft is our largest investment, but it's predominantly an enterprise company. It really isn't being caught up in this political
0: firestorm. Well, it's been very clever, hasn't it? I mean, there is no M in fang.
2: Yeah, it has been very clever. And they're really outside the political focus here and outside. They're not in any sort of regulatory inquiry or or anything. And Facebook and Alphabet are, uh, they're right in the centre of this. Facebook is obviously facing this sort of antitrust, breakup risk. I think under current laws, and there was a recent court case It's just not going to fly that they're going to break them up under the current laws, how the laws operate. But you're going to need a change to laws. And again, I don't put that a high probability. But even if it was to happen and Facebook was broken into its constituent parts between WhatsApp, Instagram and Facebook, some of the parts may not go down. In that they are three very very valuable companies. The biggest risk is actually a change to a law, called Section Two Thirty of the Communications and Decency Act, and that law provides immunity for content on Facebook's platform, and also provides some immunity when they remove content. And of course, that's the political firestorm about Facebook about you know did they censor President Trump? Were they able to take him down? On that and material changes to Section 230 could have real implications for Facebook. At the end of the day, if they have to verify every statement that's put up and billions of posts are made per day, it would become impossible. We view the chances of Section 230 being amended in a material way by the US Congress is almost impossible in the political environment because the Democrats and the Republicans have fundamentally opposed views. They'd want to do exactly the opposite things. And Alphabet's risks relate to competition policy and antitrust. There is some competition laws that given they can favour, you know, Android, they can favour if they're running a travel or a shopping business, are they favouring those internal businesses vis-a-vis people who want to advertise on their platform. So they could well have fines and changes that are forced by the Europeans or other governments around the world, which will cost them some money at the end of the day and maybe make their platform slightly less powerful as an advertising medium. And a breakup of alphabet of a change in law, again, you know, YouTube would probably be enormously valuable if it was separated. Android would be very, very valuable. The Play Store would be very valuable. So you asked how we sort of manage the risk. We don't put all our eggs in one basket. You know, we have more technology companies. We own SAP and Microsoft. They're really outside of this loop. We have Tencent and Alibaba. They're not facing US Congress risk on competition policy. They don't really even operate in Western economies. The companies at the pointy end of Western technology regulatory risk are actually Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Alphabet. We own two of the four. So we think about how much we have. We have an aggregate risk limit for all those companies if we're owning all of them, which we don't at the moment. We have individual stock limits that are lower than our our maximum positions we can take in companies that aren't subject to this risk. So it's about understanding the risk. It's having experts advising us on the risk. It's thinking about where the dial is in terms of where the risk is at the moment. And then what the aggregate exposures. And the very last thing I'd say is there's something called a margin of safety. We value these companies and we want to buy them at a meaningful discount to provide some sort of flex between, you know, It's inevitable changes we made that could impact their valuations. You know, if you've got a bridge in the world that can have 300 tonnes crossing it at any time, you don't drive three trucks with trailers weighing 299 tonnes. You kind of would want a maximum load of 200 tonnes on a 300-tonne bridge. And that's how we think about these big tech companies, you know. And it was a reason we sold Apple. Apple got fully valued and there wasn't a margin of safety, so we sold it because we know things can go wrong. We still think there is a very decent margin of safety in relation to Alphabet and Facebook. And if they went up in price and there was less margin of safety, we would hold smaller positions as part of this risk management.
0: Golly, it's such an interesting place, America, at the moment. Well, let's finish by a final question to you both. And it's a big one, starting with you, Michael. Uh, There's so many risks everywhere. What really keeps you up at night?
3: When I was deputy director of the CIA, I got asked that question a lot, and I would answer it by saying something like, terrorists with nuclear weapons. And, you know, I do worry about that, and the agency worries about that, and the U.S. government worries about that. But what really keeps me up at night is not a national security issue. What really keeps me up at night is the health of my country's politics, the health of our economy and the health of our society. Because if we can't keep those healthy, then our ability to lead in the world is gonna be significantly constrained. And our ability to ultimately protect ourselves is gonna be undermined. And the ability to protect our allies is gonna be undermined. So at the end of the day, it's our politics in particular that keeps me up at night.
0: And Hamish, what about you?
2: You know, what keeps me up at night? First of all, I'd say is that markets are not keeping me up at night at the moment. You know, Phil Fisher wrote a book which was titled Conservative Investors Sleep Well at Night. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're conservative investors and we design our portfolio to be resilient to the unexpected risks. So I don't lose a lot of sleep that there's risks out there. But there are very visible risks at the moment that we're watching very closely. The risks relating to our China investments that we've spoken about is something that we're watching incredibly closely. The inflation risk, with the amount of stimulus in the economy and the reopening that's happened, there is, of course, a risk of inflation in the world. And that could have very adverse consequences for markets. But we think we understand that risk and we can steer around it. The third risk is the virus escape mutation risk. We're already seeing this Delta variant at the moment. It is quite frightening how rapidly the Delta variant has spread around the world. It's evading vaccines to the point that people are getting affected, having asymptomatic and mild infections from that, which is passing it to other people who aren't immunised, which have bad effects. But if you've been vaccinated, it looks like the vaccines are pretty effective at the moment, which is great news. What we don't know is what the next few variants are going to be. It's inevitable we get more variants. And the the risk is that we get a variant that actually escapes the immunity from the current vaccines and hospitalizations and deaths starts escalating. I would say that is the risk I'm most concerned about. I cannot probability weight it. This is human nature. A lot of people have their heads in the sand on this risk and saying, look, it was all overblown last time. These vaccines are fantastic. And maybe it's COVID fatigue, I don't know. Maybe people just say the fears were overblown. But if it was to happen and the current vaccines are ineffective, you know, how would governments respond? How long is it going to take to recode and revaccinate people? How fragile is the world's economies in reality? How many bullets do the central banks and governments really have left to fight to start this war again? What would the human cost be of something that escapes the viruses. So I'm not saying this is going to happen, I've got no ideas, and I've got no idea of probability waiting this, but I would say it is hiding in plain sight. This risk is foreseeable. Uh, it doesn't mean it's going to happen, but if it happens, people can't say after the event, oh, well, no one could have seen that coming. It's clearly foreseeable it could happen. It just doesn't matter, it will happen. From our portfolio point of view, Tiki, Uh, We're pretty resistant. I'm probably more concerned for society than I'm for our portfolio about that
3: risk. Tiki, can I add one point here? Because Hamish is exactly right. And as long as there is COVID that is on fire in different parts of the world, that increases the chances of us getting the variant that Hamish is worried about. And developed countries can make a difference by making the vaccine available to the rest of the world. And so I think we have a huge responsibility, particularly the United States, to make the vaccine available so that we, whatever that probability is, and I agree it's very difficult to measure, whatever that probability is, we can push it down if we help vaccinate the rest of the world.
0: Michael Morell, Hamish Douglas, I could talk to you all day, but such an important time to get both of your views. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Good to be with you, Tiki. You're welcome. Great to speak with you, Tiki.
1: That was Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan, talking to Michael Morrell, former Deputy Director of the CIA and the Australian's Business Editor-at-Large, Tiki Fullerton. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights Program. Thanks for listening.